Better listen very carefully. A good martial artist does not become tense, but ready. Essentially, at this point, the fight is over. So you pretty much flow with the goal. Who is worthy to be trusted with the secret to limitless power? I'm ready. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Bulletproof for BJJ podcast. I'm JT, I'm here with Joey, and we are blessed to have the legend, Gustavo Dantas, join us today. Welcome, Gustavo. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Man, we are very privileged to have you here today and excited to ask you some questions about all the different things that you have experienced through your long jiu-jitsu career and get some insight for all the people listening about the evolution of jiu-jitsu as far as you see it and and all the cool things you're working on now. But I, I want to actually kind of go back because some of the people listening may not be familiar with your history and all the amazing things that you've done. And so I wanted to start uh, actually at the beginning because, uh, you know, in my internet research, it said that you were actually a judo guy when you were young. You started in judo before you came to jiu-jitsu. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I was young. It was the first experience that I had, so probably about 11, 11 years old, 12, and I really enjoyed, but the problem is I wasn't a very good student, and I had some bad grades, and my mom kind of uh, said no more, so I, it took okay. me a long break until uh, I got back to uh, having better grades. That took a while, and and then eventually I got exposed to jiu-jitsu. Instead of going back to judo, my brother started jiu-jitsu. And said, like, man, it's it's similar, but there's more stuff you can do on the ground. And then I took a class, and I kept – I've been training since. That was 1989. And my brother, maybe six months later, stopped, got involved with triathlon, and has been involved with triathlon since. That's kind of crazy. Wow. Interesting. And you competed in the first ever Federated World Championships back in 1996 as a as a purple belt. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Great experience. Well, the thing is, back in 96, you're not like it's the big hype that is now like the world championship like it is now. It's kind of like, hey, yeah, they're going to do a, a world, I guess, you know, and you're going to have a tournament. They're going to call the world championship. So it's not something that was, at least from my point of view, cool. It's a worst, but it's not what it, you know, what it is right now. And back then, I believe it was three mats and maybe like... I'll have to check my my facts, but maybe like up to maybe three hundred competitors. Wow! And and they had the we the I think a lot of people don't know, but back then the the worlds came to the U.S. in two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. So before that, in Brazil, you needed to be pre qualified to compete at the worlds. If you come from out of the country, and then you would go straight in. But they started having, like, you need to go be first or second in your state, in your state federation. They had, at the previous year, they had the first PANS. So they needed to place at PANS or Brazilian Nationals. They had the Brazilian Nationals for a team. So they had, like, a few tournaments that you need to be pre-qualified to get in. And and if you didn't have any of that, you'd have to compete the weekend before. So they had a national trial. So they do a, a big bracket and two people of each bracket would go. So you have, like, whatever. The winner, if they had, like, a, a big bracket split into, you know, the winner of each one who actually wouldn't go to a finals. It was just like, okay, the the two winners would uh, would go. So that happened that in, in 96, or oh, 95, I took third in the Rio State, which wouldn't qualify me. And I had the opportunity to do the trials the weekend before. And... And I won, uh, I won my, my side of the bracket, so I was nice. able to compete. And that was in January of 1996. So a lot of people don't know that was the only year that was that tournament was placed in January, which is summer in Brazil. And at the Tijuca Tennis Club, mm. the tournament they have there, it's kind of a ghetto. <laughs> yeah, it's, man, it's, yeah, not, sure. it's not nice. You know, the... The locker rooms, it's it's a I mean, mess. The bathroom. I've competed there before. It's intense. Yeah, and there's no AC or anything like that. So summer, it was brutal. So after that, from 96 to 97, and then 97, they started doing July. 
because that helped to calm down. So that was about a year and a half. And I like to say, and I'm not embarrassed to say, especially in 96, I had no business in, in winning the tournament because of mindset related. I was more like, I, maybe some people have been listening, maybe have listened to some of my spiel and talking about with some of the things that I got involved with the BJJ Mental Coach, creating content for people to overcome some of the mental blocks that sometimes can prevent you from being your best self in tournaments. And I did struggle a lot with that, with confidence. And I remember that going into this tournament, okay, it's not what the world represents now or whatever, but I was kind of like in that mode. I was in a small school. I was before I moved to Underpenhenera School in uh, Novo Neon. They just started in 95. And right after in 96, I moved. But I was kind of like in a mindset like, well, you would be cool if I get to compete at the world. So meaning like I'm going to the trials. So if I do all the trials, I get to compete and I can get to go to a party. Like, yay, I'm at the tournament. So meaning... It's not the mindset that you you need to have to win a tournament like that. But somehow, I end up winning the, the trials. Somehow, I end up making to the semifinals. And, and then I lost. But, like, feeling like I wasn't really performing my best, like, really holding back. And I have mentioned this before. I know that a training, training is competing, competing, but I had the opportunity to train with this guy that I lost that was winning a lot of things uh, back then so I was ready in my head I had for people who don't know on my YouTube channel I created this thing called the list of the top 10 mental mistakes jiu-jitsu competitors make and how to avoid them and all based on the the things that I personally did and some of them are, are right there and one of them like hyping up the opponent just giving too much credit to the other guy you know what I mean? So in my horrible mindset, I was like, oh, with like a built-in excuse, oh, if if I lose, it's okay, right? He's been winning a bunch of stuff, so it should be okay. So I kind of like, I lost to a 2-0, but with no sense or urgency. That was kind of like, it was acceptable, and it's not. It's not accept. It's not acceptable to lose. I'm not, it's not acceptable to go in with that kind of mindset, but it is what it is. That's what I had. I was doing the best I could. You know, at that moment, and then probably six to eight months—I don't quite remember—I got to train with this guy, and I got the best of him in training. Of course, training, training is different, but there was a big lesson for me that are like that could have happened in a tournament. Of course, I already had improvements. I was already training under Perineras and everything changed when I, when I went there, technically speaking, mindset speaking. So there was something else. But this is just an example. Maybe, I don't know, for if you or any of the listeners maybe have competed in a term that you felt that you didn't do too well because you gave too much credit, too much respect to the other person. And after you're done, you're like, oh, wow, the monster wasn't as scary as I thought it was, you know what I mean? So that's the kind of like uh, stuff that sometimes our minds create. So that was kind of part of my, one of the life lessons and competition lessons that I've, that I've learned along the way. Yeah. I wanted to ask, um, could you tell us what part of Brazil did you, are you from? Like, where did you start jiu-jitsu and talk on, like going back then, uh, 89, right? You said you started. What was the, what was the scene of jiu-jitsu like? What, you know, for us now, it's kind of like going to a, there's hmm. jiu-jitsu shops on every corner kind of thing, but yeah. it would have been very different back then. Can you kind of talk on the vibe of the culture? Yeah, it was kind of like an underground scene, sort of. It wasn't, people have this wrong perception. Maybe now, like, but back then in the, in the 80s, it's not in early 90s, it's not one of those things like, oh, everyone knows what jiu-jitsu is and number one there's no internet there's no specialized there's no google there's no specialized magazine i'm not even talking internet i'm saying magazines that eventually they came about so there was not really a scene i i've been aware of the name jiu-jitsu since i was little for the fact that my dad got involved with jiu-jitsu in late 60s early 70s and he used to teach some to my brother, 
uh, some stuff, some self-defense or whatever. And my parents split when I was four. My brother was eight. So I didn't really see. I don't have any memory of that. But he used to show my brother some stuff. And then eventually my brother, uh, my brother used to say, when I start, when, I, when I'm able to drive, I'm going to take jiu-jitsu lessons. Because there's nothing around where we live. And as a younger, bro- younger brother used to say, too, like, I'm going to train jiu-jitsu, too. So I used to say that I was going to train, but we didn't really have, like, an opportunity. So there was eventually when I got involved in whatever they had was kind of far. Nothing really by our neighborhood. And being a kid definitely is a uh, commute was a problem. And eventually when my brother did start driving, but they did have two local schools in, in my neighborhood. Most of the schools back then, I think a lot in Brazil maybe has been changed. I, I left Brazil a long time ago. But back then, my vision of a jiu-jitsu school is always like it's a fitness gym and you have a room that have mats. And then usually the teacher does some deal with the gym. It's not like people really have the ability to, most people have the ability to just own, a, just rent a place and just run jiu-jitsu classes. Uh, just the reality of a third world country. And having, usually it's, it's a gym and then for the most part and in a lot of places, and you have the classes there. So I started at uh, this place, and I was there for two months, and the, the teacher got a, a problem, got in, had a falling out with the owner of the fitness gym, and the program just ended. There's no more. So I went to a different one. So the one that I went to, uh, the instructor name was Jair, Jair Koto. Um, the thing is, it was another fitness gym, super ghetto, with a like, very small little area. And he was, unfortunately, was kind of nice guy, but like the program was kind of there. You know what I mean? It's like, well, I will have this gym and twice a week I go there and I show some stuff. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't like the best place to learn. You did some self, a lot of like self defense with Rohi and there, but not really. So I, I didn't know better. You know, for me, like I'm doing jujitsu, and. And it was just not a place for me. And I took, and I, I was there for like almost two and a half years and got my blue belt. I was wearing a blue belt. I was saying that I'm not saying that I was a blue belt. I was wearing a blue belt. And, and eventually sure. he, I was just bugging him a lot for like, hey, I had the interest of competing. I know that there's, and he said like, ah, oh, there's no competitions around, which it was true. Back then, there's not many competitions at all however he was the my only source of information any type of information in jiu-jitsu and he wasn't involved with the scene whatsoever he 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 taught like gym classes and was a personal trainer so he wasn't engaged with jiu-jitsu at all you know his dad uh promoted him so it was just part of the the business and it was kind of there and but i bug him so much and he didn't have too many students probably like pushing pushing 15 of us like in a good time and just bugging him to uh to compete and finally he said i'm gonna do a in-house but i'm i'm talking like over a year like bugging him like hey i uh i saw saw on tv like rarely it would show some alternative channels to show something a little bit of some highlighter jujitsu and i'm like dude there are tournaments i want to know more about it and eventually i just bugged him so much that he did a um, in-house tournament, you know, not not many people. And been, by that point, there's a few more schools. So to have about, he invited like four schools. And and that experience kind of really changed, you know, the direction of my life. I don't know, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of this quote uh, by uh, Tony Robbins. It's in your moments of decisions that your destiny is shaped because there's certain moments in your life that you make certain decisions that really shape your destiny and what you do with it. So this tournament, I had a, a horrible performance. I was just, imagine you like, you're super excited to go to a tournament. That's your first tournament. I don't know, uh, do you guys compete before? Have some experience competing a little bit? Yeah, we've we've done a few competitions. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah, so... You know, and you so get maybe, I, and also had terrible, terrible failures as well <laughs> in that spectrum. So we go in kind of like, and we don't know what to expect. Some people may be scared, some people are excited. I was excited, but then, long story short, 
um, I didn't know much. I just found out that that day, the start the match in less than 20 seconds, I was inside a triangle, and then I tap. And the more interesting part, the best one is they raised the opponent's arm, and that was me wearing my blue belt, and the dude was a white belt. <laughs> so, oh, the, so. So imagine, you know, you going through that, your first experience, and now you're already not very confident. Now that does not help your process. So anyway, uh, we did, and then he put me to do, like, exhibition match, and then I kind of just spaz out with another kid there for, like, I was 17, and spaz out with some kid there for, like, five minutes. Don't remember exactly what happened, but it went for five minutes. And then I got another loss, but now this time this kid was a yellow belt. So you see that the day didn't start too well, you know. So you're wearing a blue belt. So I went home, and I was, man, I was, like, furious. And I got home, and I told my mom, because this is what I'm talking about, the decision of certain moments in your life that you have two options. Say, like, dude. I'm done with this. Like, I come here to his classes Tuesdays and Thursdays or whatever. We roll here for like three minutes, and I think I'm getting ready for a tournament. I don't know. And this is the best that I can do. And I told her I needed to get out of there. And I was desperate to be like, I need to find another place. And I had to convince my mom because I had to go to a different neighborhood. That means now I need to uh, get a bus and on the way front and back. So, and it's a little more expensive. So I had to really convince her that I really wanted to do this. So the very first place I saw, I signed up. Straight up. The first place. There was a sign on the top of it. It was a fitness gym. They had a room. Same deal. And they had a sign saying, Jiu-Jitsu competition team. Equipe de competição. That's all I said. I said, Mom, I found a place. They do competition. I want to go there. And, of course, we're talking about Brazil and 80s and 90s it's not like oh you need to sign a waiver there's no such a thing she just gave me the check like just go there and then the lady said hey uh yeah we have a class tonight you want to come here but like no I'm, i want to sign up like you don't want to watch the class right uh before and i'm thinking oh, there's no way this place is worse than where i'm at like i need to i need to go uh i need to go asap and then i started training with fernando cruz he was a uh de la Riva Back then, purple belt, eventually I saw him getting his brown belt and then black belt. And But with, you see how it's interesting. The, uh, my other instructor wearing a black belt, and I really, man, I was, my jiu-jitsu was not good. And with a purple belt in six months, but I saw him getting his brown belt not too long after. But anyway, in six months, I felt like I became a blue belt. So I had a kind of a clue what I'm doing. I'm kind of taking classes for over two years. I hope I kind of had a clue. So I even asked him, like, can I go back to a white belt? And insisted and said no. So he saw something that I didn't. And and then I uh, eventually in about six months, I felt like, all right. I felt like I was like, okay, I'm, I was becoming like a, you know, a beginner blue belt. Let's say, and this is a good thing too, because eventually, when I got my a good thing as far as a good point for the listeners, that sometimes you know when some sometimes people can question uh, their own technique or their own structure, saying like, "Man, I don't think I'm ready," right? And the same way that my instructor said, like, "No, you'll pick up, you know, stay as blue." So in my mind, still to this day, I feel like, "Man, we were horrible." You know, and I didn't want, and then eventually when he got, when I got my purple belt and I tried to convince him to like, to not promote me because finally I was starting to make some progress competing uh, in, in the blue belt. It took me a while to start getting some, some results. But in then a purple belt, that's when things like really start to turn around for me. So what's, what's the point that trust your coach? You know, maybe you have, you think that you're not ready, but there's someone outside looking and you pay for classes, you know, and on that point, him trusting me to say like, no, stay here. No, you're going to this belt. And then that's when things kind of turn around for me. But the point is maybe for some, for some people that are not feeling confident, maybe they just got a certain belt. They're not sure if they are like, man, just trust your coach and tr trust their judgment. Awesome. And so what was the move for you 
to go to Novi Union because you came up at a kind of legendary time for the team. Like you were part yeah. of a legendary cohort of of people. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, the move to that team and then being part of this this amazing group of uh, jiu-jitsu competitors? I have to say that I think the first like tough tough decision maybe like tough that gave me a lot of anxiety to take was to leave my coach Fernando but there is a reason why he was a a police officer and it's very sad in in Brazil like maybe in Australia it doesn't happen as much or in Brazil but in uh, oh sorry in US uh, corruption happens everywhere but when we talk about police in South America Central America there's this massive corruption and it's very easy to go kind of the wrong route the best yeah. example that i can i can picture here i don't know if you guys watched the the movie uh denzel watched on training day so yes. if you did yeah so that's kind of kind of the point and man i saw the transformation of unfortunately his life start going to a like a a very dark uh, route to a point that he, he used to bounce around different, again, fitness gyms, and then would you just room and he got kicked out, we go with him. Man, I cannot say anything bad about him because he always took care of me. You know what I mean? Like, I was being quiet. I was being an introvert anyway. He, you know, I'll come to all classes available, do my thing, try to compete in every any tournament that I could afford. You know, so I was a, a good, dedicated student, so he always uh, took care of me, but got to a point that he stopped basically going and he ended up getting getting kicked out of the last place that we were at and then we're training in someone's gym just my favorite until he found a place but he wasn't going to find a place and i told him like man I, by that by that point even earlier i already made my decision that i want to make a living with jiu-jitsu i said i there's no way because for like six months and that was after I already took third at the world. So I took third at the worlds with him, which is a huge accomplishment for people in my neighborhood and, and so forth from smaller schools. So that was kind of a, a big deal. Um, and I just knew that I couldn't just, I was holding classes with my friend and like, dude, like I'm, I shouldn't be like really focused on, on teaching. I'm still developing. And I was a, a, um, a new purple belt per se. And, and eventually, uh, I had to. Uh, and he was man. He's done. So, he's done some uh, <laughs> some bad choices and done some like messed up things. You know, being that you know the corrupting in Brazil, they have those like wild um, cops. And he was one of them. He became one of them. And all the students took off. Would not even say buy nothing. Just like they wouldn't even talk with them because they're scared of them for a reason. Uh, my friend uh, Leo and I were the only ones, and to this day, um, that actually sat on. I was 21, and I sat on. I went to his house, sat on his living room, and about shit my pants. But I sat in front of him to tell him that was how uh, that was what we were doing, where we're going. Because that I couldn't, I I couldn't be in that position anymore. You know, I couldn't go the the way it was my train was going. Like, I'm not going to go anywhere if if I stay like this. So that was a very tough decision because I didn't have anything. I He was a very charismatic guy, but he was a little off. But as I mentioned, he always took care of me. So that was a very tough decision for me. But I had to make my very first professional a decision and back then in brazil the creonchi you know concept that you leave your trader or whatever you know what i mean but it's not like he had a place to teach so how far was the for you to make that change it sounds like you know it was very significant how far was pineda sorry how, uh, how, how far as pedineros how far as far as distance from where i live to there or yeah, time yeah both both yeah because i live in the north side of town and underpaid school is in the south sides, a better neighborhood. And I, by that point, there were multiple, multiple schools, and some okay. And by my neighborhood or Tijuca in that area, there are a lot of uh, schools around that point. 
But I felt like on that mo that specific time, I felt like if I want to really um uh, stand out, I need to go to the side of town. There are gyms I could go walking from my school and I'll take a bus for forty five minutes if there's no traffic, uh, to go train over there because it was a different level. Uh he was starting to build his team, and Shaolin was starting to stand out. We're like blue belts at the same time, purple. And then eventually, I stayed purple. He went to brown. Uh, Renato Charuto, the one of uh, BJ Penn's coach, um, after half, he was uh, basically the guy, who, as far as I know, that kind of taught him the most. And he used to stand out a lot too. And, that, and I was noticing them. And he wasn't like a popular school yet. But every tournament I'll go, I'll notice those guys are like, man, those guys are doing really well. So I started, like, I needed to change, like, a friend of mine, Matt Schroeder in college, trained with him. And that was the kind of the connection that we needed. So he, uh, I remember that he went there. He did a private class with Schroeder, and then he showed me some stuff. And I was just kind of like, like, blew my mind because I was basically not learning anything for months because he wasn't, I wasn't having classes and I was like, yeah, man, I, I got to, you know, uh, I got to go there. And that's, I felt that that's where I wanted to be. And, and you're right. I was very lucky to be in that, we call like the golden generation of Novo Union, the amount of talent uh, coming up. And that would never happen again because back then, Andre was fully immersed and obsessed with building Gi champions and building his team. Full obsession. And that means he attracts some obsessed people too, and they combine, and then boom, you know, a, a lot of the talent started to come out. And I felt that when you're surrounded by, because here's the thing, another point that we need to always, and this for the listeners too, it's so important, uh, the power of the association, Jim Rome, one of the my favorite motivational speakers, say the power of the association that you're the average of the five people you hang out the most with. If it's true or not, but like if you if you roll with like you always have five people that are not very confident, the chance of you being not being very confident are pretty high, you know. Um, and now you walk around with people that are with high confidence, good confidence, you start to absorb the next thing. I'm like, okay. Like, I'm actually, I'm not that bad. I'm okay. I actually can't hang with them better than I thought. And then you, your mindset starts to, um, to improve. And that's how I went from, like, having zero negative confidence in jiu-jitsu from taking me six tournaments to win a match. I'm not saying winning a tournament to win a match. So it's very tough to feel confident going in a, in a tournament when you not even know if you can win a match, right? So it was a, as soon as you win your first match, and I was delighted at the end of the tournament. I was like, oh, nice. I beat someone. Maybe I can yeah. beat other people, you know? So that was the process until I get to, like, train with these high-level guys, and I'm like, I'm actually hanging with them, you know what I mean? So that starts to build. So your confidence comes from your training, period. You know, and of course, it's a combination of things, but for sure, the training and then as you get results, it's kind of like a stamp of like in your mind of like, okay, I I can do this, and yeah, and I got very lucky, man, to to be surrounded by so many good people. Was it also the expectation? Because I mean, I mean, I knew I my I first encountered your face on my screen uh, with Hobson Mura in Fusion. Uh -huh. So yeah. like one of the first instructionals I ever had, Fusion One, Fusion Two, and it mm -hmm. was you and Hobson, right? And and you know I'm very late to jujitsu compared to uh, so many other people. I started in 2008, um, but one of my coaches, he was like really into the 90s jujitsu, and he told me all about Novi Union at that time, and he played all the old tapes and talked about Vitor and Fajal and the guys from your time. Mm -hmm. And you as well, obviously. How did, can you talk a little bit, because we, we actually talked about this not so long ago, about championship teams. Was it, t can you tell us a little bit more, because for a lot of people out there listening, 
They might only be a white belt and blue belt. Maybe they've never competed. They want to compete. What was it about all you guys being together? Was it the fact your coach had a high expectation and pushed you? Or was it the fact you're all really good and competing with each other intensely? Like, tell me a little bit more about that time as to how it produced so many great champions from this smaller team at that time. I think it's a combination of things. But as I mentioned, Andre was as I mentioned, fully immersed and fully obsessed with his the process of building champions. And sometimes I'm glad that people talk a little, still have a little misconception of sometimes when people hear about the word obs, uh, obsession with like a negative connotation in a way. I think nowadays it's like it has improved. We're like, he's obsessed I mean, there's no way that you're going to accomplish like big things like Andre Pereneres did as a coach if you're not obsessed with the process of teaching and being engaged with that. And it's not a, his expectation. It's just that kind of obsession breeds like more obsession from people who are around. So it's basically like me, you know, like I notice – I started noticing him because of his job with especially Shaolin and Shiro to other guys. But, like, I would watch Shaolin competing, and we still were blue belts. I Usually I was in one division over him, but I was always paying attention. Man, I, like, I like that kid. And he was, like, 16 years old beating adults, you know. And so I'm always watching him. I always watch Andre with him, and I'm like, man, um, I, I don't know what they're doing, but they're doing well, you know. And and that's what he'll do. He'll come like uh, different different times of class. There's no specific class. He'll come extra, stay longer, you know, and go f like way beyond out of his way to build his team. And whoever was in the same vibe, they would stay. And and I'm saying like, and especially Fabio Gugel sa says a a, a great terminology for people who have trained jiu-jitsu in the 90s especially in brazil they call if you train jiu-jitsu now and and you train in the 90s you're you're part of this select group uh called the uh, like basically like kind of like the survivors in, in in a way um of basically people who are like man back then there's no like oh there's an intro class come here let me. <laughs> there's no such a thing as like Okay, here's the class. You go. And Survive. that's it. And then our goal here is to win championships, kick ass, and we win. Eagle, very, very, very high. That was back then, a lot of rivalry between schools. That, that was the scene, you know? And that pushed competition. You know, like, I want to beat that team, I need to beat that team, and all that kind of stuff built uh, the competition, the competition scene. And... He just put a, a, at the same side, everyone could see how much he cared about everyone and his passion and, like, attract people that was interested in being on that vibe. Of course, not everyone was uh, wanted to be a competitor. Everyone would, at some point, get kind of involved. So they have kind of, like, the main group that competes all the time, some people that are compete once in a while, and... So they have like different class times or a little more like competition geared in a way. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was, it's just a group, a group of people that was very committed to, to win. And that helped me because I felt like I needed that. I, I was craving sports since I was a kid. And I, unfortunately, my mom, a single mom that raised two boys the, the best way she could. She couldn't afford a lot of things. So that took me a while to get to a point that she could afford something. That was my teens years. But yeah, I wish I was doing other sports earlier, but I just, I wasn't exposed to. Can I put a, a face to the name for Andre Pedaneras? Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of listeners who are, are not familiar with, with the old school. Um, but he, correct me if I'm wrong, Gustavo, Andre was, we saw him most recently as Jose Aldo's coach in the UFC, right? He would always Yes, be, sir. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously not, you know, even Jose's going back a little bit now. Yeah. But but that was where you could see Andre. So just to, to put a face to the name, he was and, and I think Henan Barrow was also one of his mm -hmm. his top UFC guys. 
Because Nova Union had quite a famous like MMA team, right? That does. At what point? Tell tell me a little bit about that because not not everybody is uh, familiar with the, these other elements. Can you t- speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it, the point I I left Brazil in January of '99. Um, so now, early 2000s, what happened is a lot of the guys, jujitsu guys starting to uh they need to make some money back then seminars are not or not really a thing there's no like really pro divisions or things that nowadays you know you can basically be an entrepreneur and and have your association and have your merchandise especially in brazil it was not what it is right now and the best guys they they need they need to get to find a way to get paid so some of them started to kind of go out of state to find a better place to teach because Rio was just packed. And some of the guys started to migrate to MMA, being being Shaolin, being being one of them, one of the the pioneers from Team Nova Union. Actually, Andre put the very first his uh there's no other coach, as far as I know, in a, currently in the UFC. That has an uh, he put his first athlete nine, 1996, Rafael Carino, UFC 9, is a friend of mine too, uh, the same generation. He fought in that UFC 9 in Detroit. And so Andre's the only MMA coach that was back then and still in the UFC involved wow. with, with the game. That's huge. You know what I mean? That's 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 a long that's a long time, dude. And and then what happened is all his obsession of you know reaching another level in something they um yeah he started moving to pour into MMA and then the jiu-jitsu team started to kind of go down like in mid mid 2000s going you know like starting to disappear because the best talents migrating to MMA and then they're like coming back and over the years they start to produce more guys but it wasn't like it used to be and then guys started to uh to travel started having some opportunities to go to Japan shoot to Japan and still not getting paid much but there's the kind of some of the opportunities they uh, they had back then and it was cool I had the opportunity to be Shaolin had 25 pro fights I believe I had the opportunity to be on his corner for his very first fight in in Vegas in 2000 oh, wow. 2001 or 2002 I'm not I'm not sure but that was his very first professional fight and yeah so he put all his effort into training MMA fighters and man for you to be able people don't realize one thing about MMA coaches okay if you look into like the best MMA coaches in business. Um, it's not. It's one thing you build an athlete and put in a UFC. That's awesome. Another one is the guy maintaining himself in the UFC, right? To be able because it's it happens all the time. Someone gets in, two fights, cut, boom, done, right? Now, not too many people can make a full career after you got into your UFC, you're there, and you retire there. Not many people can put a guy to fight for a title. Not many people can get someone to fight and win a title. And not just win a title, someone that actually defend their title for like a freaking decade. And that's what Andre did. You know what I mean? That, you know, of course, and he always talks about him, like he said, like, it's not me. It happens that Aldo is a freak. Sure. He probably, he said, like, he he always says that, you know, every academy, every gym, like, at one point in your career, like a, like a major diamond's going to land there. You know what I mean? And then what are you going to do with a diamond? How are you going to shape it and everything? You know what I mean? That's up to each coach. But what I, he is had, able uh, to do... Mm-hmm, so I was going to say, just quickly on Aldo, I, I could be wrong about this, but I trained with Alliance in Sao Paulo uh, w- when I was there, and they talked about uh, when uh, uh, Jose Aldo was doing jiu-jitsu. Oh, yeah. And they said he had the craziest cardio because I believe it was a, a match, and I don't know if you're privy to this or whatever, it was him versus Cobrinha yeah. at Brown Belt, I believe. Yeah. And he beat Cobrinha. And yeah. at that time, Cobrinha was training really hard and was awesome. He'd come from TT and all of this. And 
Cobrinha said that Jose Aldo felt like he had two hearts in his chest because he had, he would not gas. And Cobrinha couldn't believe this guy was nonstop, nonstop like the whole match. And actually that inspired him to train harder, like because, you know, to, to be a real champion. Because, uh, yeah, I believe uh, Jose Aldo beat him twice in, in Jiu-Jitsu yeah. back in the gi back in the days. And that motivated him to go to the next level. And he, you know, Jose Alza is like a, such a legend. A lot of people don't appreciate that about his early days in jiu-jitsu. Well, people just don't know, you know. Uh, yeah. Back then, it's not like now it's nice and you have flow and you have this and you can see the matches, yeah. you know what I mean? Sure. But, like, people really didn't see, you know, a lot of the work those guys put. I'm very blessed that for the past 20 years I had multiple opportunities to to learn from Andre being in corners with him, going to UFCs and many other organizations. And and one of the main guys that I uh, had the opportunity to uh, experience a lot, and that's uh, is Jose Aldo. He, in my opinion, he is like everyone have their own favorite fighter, of course. He is my, uh, my favorite fighter, not just because, you know, what I've seen uh, him doing, but, him as a human being. I had the opportunity to travel with him a lot when he was in the WEC because Andre didn't have many, like, help. Aldo wasn't known or anything like that. So I would travel with them, help with, like, cutting weight and translation and just getting situated because sometimes we'll have two fighters and Andre's by himself, you know what I mean? And and then I go in. So I start to, like, go with him and I learned so much from him. We learned from each other a lot, especially mental like mentally speaking being a in in a room with him for for a week in a hotel you know sharing the same room and and going to fights with him and see how he he functions and I, man i learned a lot and that dude it's so uh dedicated it's it's very very impressive and it's not by accident he was the champion for like 10 years of course everyone's time you know Gets there, but like when he was in his prime, and for yeah. that long, dude, a killer, you know, Crazy. with so with a mission, with you know, what was his mission? He needed to. That's it, man. Either you fight or you don't eat. You know what I mean? Like he had nothing. That's people yeah. don't realize. The dude moved to a gym. He moved from from an house. He had zero, nothing. Mm. He lived in a gym, and and what he was able to build with. Here, of course, the dude has full package, like you know, athleticism, mind, you know, ability to pick up. That dude would probably be good in whatever he decide to, whatever sport he would get involved. He would probably be good. His athleticism is just, again, his prime is young, it's just insane. And being able to witness that, you know, many fights, being there for when he fought for his uh, first title at WC, being in a corner for that too. So. Very blessed to like experience um, those people, and that helped and that helped me with my process. This is how high level guys function. This is how they think. You know what I mean? And uh, studying that and experience that too, being there with them. Was he? Um, I guess. I mean, I have no idea. I, I met him one time in a park, Ibapuera Park, actually playing uh, like football, like a pickup game, mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> actually, yeah. Anyway, it was awesome. I just saw him randomly with the guys, but he seemed like a really nice guy in person. But obviously everyone knows how tough he is, he's striking all of this. I wanted to move to talk a little bit more about like the BJJ mental coach and, and the work you've done in terms of like a like sports psychology and, and the way you think about jujitsu. Was there anything that um, Aldo ever said to you or was it more just his actions? Like, because I, I, obviously you have such a rich history and knowledge of jiu-jitsu, your own experience as a competitor, being around other competitors, was there anything that you took from being around Jose Aldo as well as all these high-level competitors that have informed how you think about it, how you teach your students, or you know, the mental approach you've taken to forming the BJJ mental coach? Like, Can you speak to how that translates? I think every... Every high-level competitor, you're going to pick up a little bit. There's no way. We have, like, 
to this day, I know, like, whenever we meet or have, like, you know, like, uh, I was for his last fight last year in Utah, um, that he's still, you know, um, mentally, man, he's definitely different. Of course, after, you know, like, so many years, it changes, though, the, the response, the expectations and all that, you know, can be, can weigh on you big time. But I felt like his his focus and and his discipline it was very unique and never like um, for example when I think one of the most powerful things that I experienced in MMA and uh, was with with him when when he fought for the WC title he was fighting against. Um, Oh, I forgot the name of uh, the dude from uh, uh, Mike Brown. Incredible oh, yeah. fighter. Incredible fighter. Like, super tough dude. And so, Aldo was already coming, coming up with, like, some good sequence and everything. And then we're, uh, we're about to leave the, the locker room to the, to the fight. And then uh, Mike Brown's locker room was everyone's just being, you know, kind of, like, pumping him up and being loud and banging the walls and stuff like that, you know? And and Aldo was super focused, just kind of looking down like he always does. Even when he's in a cage, he's never, like, looking the guy in the head. He's always looking down, you know. And and then Andre stopped right in front of him and, and said, are, are you listening to this? You know, like, they bang it in the wall, doing all that stuff. And he said, like, they're holding the key of your house. You got to let him uh, take the, the key from you. And he just kind of looking down, just kind of shook his head because on that fight, if you won that fight, he was going to be able to put his money down, big money down for his first apartment. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in that guy's mind, he's not thinking about any party or whatever's going on. It's like, I'm here to get paid. And I witnessed that multiple times. With Every time we leave, and I've been in multiple fights with him, we leave the fight, we go eat and go back to the room. And he said, I didn't come here. I came here to work. I didn't come here to spend my money. And he'll go back to the room and he'll just chill and hang out until the morning. And he'll not wow. go out. And at the time I that I know that uh, I wasn't at this one, that they wanted him to go to after party. I was like, dude, I ain't after party. I don't, no, I don't do that. You know? And they pay for him to go. So he goes there for, to stay there for two hours. So when it's two hours, it's like two hours. And he's like out of there. The dude doesn't yeah, drink, wow. doesn't smoke, nothing. So that's the kind of focus, you know what I mean? For you to be that different, like as I mentioned, the progression of getting to the UFC, winning fights, title, defend your title, God knows how many times, you have to be special like Anderson Silva. You have to be special. Yeah. To be a Tom Brady, you have to be special. You know, so there's like every sport you're going to have like – the different ones man so that kind of like obsession of his training with his goal and his discipline i uh i've never uh, yeah i've never seen any anything like it is and there's a reason why he's one of the best ever definitely and uh the, the interesting thing is for me because obviously you talk about you know jiu-jitsu early days and and kind of in in a lot of ways brazil being like they're being third world conditioned so it's difficult to find good gyms and things like this and obviously it's evolved over time mm -hmm. so much more jiu-jitsu now in brazil but then also worldwide you're there um you know you're in arizona mm -hmm. uh, yep. you know ha having your school uh you know um nova union spread out across the world rmnu that was a, a big big like expansion and we can see the evolution of jiu-jitsu now across the whole world um what I find very interesting is, is uh, and it's awesome as a testament to you as a person, to do um, jiu-jitsu tribe and to take the influence of jiu-jitsu and use that to help other people who are, who are struggling. Uh, talk to me or talk to us about um, your experience of being in America, teaching jiu-jitsu there, having school there, and then also now um, using your, your influence and all the good work you're doing to then help people in poorer communities with Jiu-Jitsu Tribe? Well, one thing, I've been living now, I completed 20, I live half of my life in Brazil, half wow. in the United States. Amazing. 24 and 24. That's wild. And 
I came from, like I said, I, I started, you know, I was able to see my, my mom starting her life with no child support and no help uh, from zero, from literally we didn't have a place to stay. I stayed with my grandparents while she was in a different state working to raise some money to be able to rent a place and then start our life. So not that we uh, uh, feel like I'm like in a, in a favela, this and that, and like there's friends of mine that came way tougher situations than, than I did, but my mom did the best she could to make sure that we had, you know, good education and there's not, that have food on the table and, and so forth. So she, um, definitely my, my superhero and, and growing, growing up in Brazil and being in that, uh, those low middle class areas. Yeah. I've seen a lot of, you know, uh, yeah, rough stuff from, from Rio. Um, we can go on and on here, but, uh, but I always felt like, well, I love one day to have some type of social project or something you can teach for free. And then when I moved to the U.S., I had a feeling that, man, I don't think I'm going to move back to Brazil. I don't think I'm going to be able to to do that. So I had that sitting in my head for a long time. And find, and I always try to find a way to help a project or something. And then finally, 2010, um, I decided to start the Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. So basically, with a mission to inspire, impact, improve lives, utilizing jiu-jitsu as a personal and social development tool. So we do nowadays, because of course the organization has evolved over the years, but we have two approaches. One, it's more behavioral, like mental health related, meaning we have, I have a, I don't know if you know or the listeners know, but I've been promoting turns for 25 years, and I'm the owner of Arizona Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu League. And basically, we did this this partnership with the Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. So we contact, we have, for example, right now in Arizona, we have this organization, this behavioral center called Resilient, uh, Resilient Health. So basically, we get kids with anxiety disorder and depression, and then we do a partnership with a school affiliated with that supports Arizona Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu League to have a six-month sponsorship to offer free classes to a specific child, provide the gi. After the six months, we reevaluate, uh, say like, oh, does he like, does he want to keep going or we're not? So we ran a pilot in my school a few years ago and it was awesome. But the only problem was logistics because some of the centers were far. And I said, well, I knew we needed some partnerships and see what schools want to donate. One, one student. If you want to donate more, even better. So, now, uh, someone from Resilient Health goes and then chooses um, based on whatever cases they have, if the kids have an interest to use, and it's incredible, the, the improvement. Do you see, you guys seen people changing, probably, you, you know, your own experience, how much you change because of experience that you have in jiu-jitsu. So imagine kids with especially when anxiety disorder, depression, and so forth. So this is one approach that we have. And the other one is sustainability-related, which is we support social projects that offer free jiu-jitsu classes worldwide. It happens that most of them are in Brazil, have thousands, literally thousands of social projects with people teaching for free. And we have one that is actually is in Tucson, Arizona, that we support. Higher Grounds is an incredible place. One in Africa and the rest is all in Brazil. So we can help sustain, help sustainability. We've done like from buying mats to help with construction to getting geese. And now we have a new program called Adopt a Social Project, which is basically a commitment for 12 months that an individual business can do to support a social project to give, it's actually $300 per month. Some people may think, oh, oh man, it's a lot of money. It's like, not really. It's like here, it's like a student and a half, you know, for me. Um, to Because uh, the biggest issue that social projects go, they have everywhere, not only in Brazil, any, anywhere, is, is that coaches, usually they don't have a lot of money. They doing whatever they can, and next thing they say like, "Yo, I need to get another job, dude. I can't, I can't. This time that I'm putting here to teach for free, and then many programs just basically finish because someone needs to get a job. 
So the idea with the Adopt Social Projects is actually to be able to help compensating the coach uh, with that. And many of them, they get the money and then pour back into the program. So it's so like, you guys do whatever you want with the money. This year, it's for you. And a lot of them, they put it back in a, in, in a program. But anyway, that's so that's the idea. So we do many things related to that. We got a partnership with, a, with Browse. Browse I saw Fight. that, actually. Yeah, we know yeah. Hinata from Browse. That's awesome. Yeah, man. It's a great partnership that we start making. We're doing three batches a year. That the concept is you buy a gi and then that generates one gi for a child. So we just finished running our first batch right now and the gis are being produced and it will be shipped to Program Brazil. Actually, our first thing we're going, we're doing 150 gis and it's, and it's like legit browse gi. It's not just like, oh, it's a little thin gi just because your kid's from the project. No, 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 no. We want to make sure that they feel like, wow, this is a nice gi. Most of them, they will never experience that. So I had the opportunity to to travel a lot, go to Brazil, visit those places, and it's life-changing. It really is. That's one of my favorite things to do. So over the years now, I don't teach as much. I'm not super involved. You know, I did tournaments, but we have a solid team that, does uh does the job and i don't really have at this point i don't really have to do anything the tournament we got a nice system going and i can put more more effort into the jujitsu tribe oh that's amazing and man that's like i said i just want to uh acknowledge you man because you are uh, such a a big part of the jujitsu history and you're giving back to the culture which is awesome so thank you for all that you have done in Appreciate that way it. And, uh, yeah, man, like, f f I guess for us, like, we're on the other side of the world. We're here in Australia. Um, but, you know, when I was in Brazil and I got to see, like, the kind of Projeto Social, like, uh, Alliance had one, mm -hmm. you know, Cicero Costa. You're like, everywhere. Every team had their project, you know. And I always thought that was, that was incredible to give young kids a purpose outside of, say, drugs or crime to focus on jiu-jitsu and change their lives for the better it's like amazing it's very inspirational and i mean look we've we got a lot of people listening to this who um they maybe don't know about that kind of hardship or ha they haven't seen that before is there any like uh advice or is there any kind of insight you can give them that either they can get involved to help um something like jujitsu tribe or is there any anything that you take away from your experience that can kind of give them some direction how they might contribute more to um, the bigger jujitsu community? Yeah, well, I'm gonna say like in a bigger picture, I'm not jujitsu tribe, but like donate to nonprofit organizations, whatever. Just get involved with a nonprofit organization. I'm not even saying jujitsu tribe or jujitsu related. I was in Brazil two months ago with shooting some mini doc series with like the impact of jiu-jitsu in impoverished communities with social projects. So we visit four places and every visit was a different topic. The first one was drug related, meaning from d drug addiction to drug dealing. Uh, people that jiu-jitsu was able to save and drug dealing in Brazil is no joke. Like as far as like, uh, basically criminals but like not just the guy oh he said a little thing no 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 we're talking about murders you know it's it's pretty it's pretty bad and we have one day we'll talk about the power of competition of being a social development tool to be able for them to explore and give them a chance for them to see the world and there's so many high level competitors that came from social projects we had a special needs day and we had a, a mental health day and interviewing the coach and usually two of the students or the parents or whatever the case is. And, and I was talking with, uh, with someone earlier today and my a big takeaway, I, I had two takeaways. Number one, Brazil's in trouble as far as like the poor people in Brazil are in trouble. You go to some places you are completely forgotten by the politicians that got completely forgotten. But my my main one was like, I don't know what Brazil, and I'll say just Brazil because, of course, third world countries in general, 
But like overall, I don't know what Brazil in that case would be if they didn't have nonprofit organizations. Because you go to some places that they do, they have nothing. They barely have water when they do have water. Nothing. Completely forgot. And there's someone teaching jiu-jitsu in the middle of that. You know what I mean? Giving a Amazing. chance to people. I'm like, dude, that's that's insane. So we go to a place, I'm looking in the neighborhood, I'm looking around, trash everywhere. Like, dude, I'm on the top of the hill. There's no way the garbage truck doesn't come here. You know what I mean? So kids getting sick, you know, like this whole th- thing. And there's someone teaching jiu-jitsu, someone teaching art, someone teaching guitar lessons for free. You know what I mean? Like, trying to do whatever they can to get people from, especially kids, um, from trouble. So, for example, I support uh, Charity Water. Charity Water is an incredible organization. If you guys have a chance to check out charitywater.org, I've been supporting them for like five years, and I donate 30 bucks per month. It's not going to like really kill me. I'm donating 30 bucks, you know, and people really don't have water. Browse Foundation from Browse Fight, it's an incredible organization that does the same, sustainability with water. Now they're building a school in Pakistan because they have a, a factory there. Hanato does an incredible job with them. I love what, what Browse uh, does, and a lot of the supporters, they support them not just because of the quality of the gi or whatnot, or the brand, but like what it's behind the brand. You know, the amount of social work that they do. And a lot of people, like, support them mainly because of that. And then, like, cool. The geese and the stuff, it's cool, too. But, like, the mission behind. So, the takeaway is, like, to find an organization to give. You know, and I made a post one day at at jujitsutribe.org on Instagram talking about the importance of, like, five bucks. And people are like, ah, I'm going to give five bucks. What five bucks going to do? Dude, for a year, that's 60 bucks. We got 100 people. Okay, now we're talking. Now to a place like Brazil or Africa, now we've multiplied that five to one. So that can really make an impact. You know, so I think just finding an organization that want to be a part of, if you want, if you just tribe, cool. They have uh, Guardian, which is an, an incredible pro, uh, program to for jiu-jitsu they have other organizations and also one thing that i i need to mention more often we're starting a jiu-jitsu tribe institute in brazil it's in the south of brazil i did a partnership with one of one of the coaches there that i've been supporting for a few years and now we're going through all the legal part but the the jiu-jitsu aspect is ready uh, going and we have a place they have jiu-jitsu classes for kids on that kind of stuff and the goal is now in june we're taking the house next door, so we're going to have, like, we have a curriculum for, it's a personal development uh, curriculum, teaching social-emotional learning and financial education and having, like, different types of uh, professional classes to help them to get jobs, especially for the teenagers. So this is something I'm super excited about, and and also I'm, I'll be going there in June because we're promoting our first uh, Jiu-Jitsu Tribe competition, Copa Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, dedicated to kids from social projects from 4 to 17. And incredible um, opportunity for those kids to give. Like, I already sponsored a, a tournament in December, already implementing a lot of the systems that I use here in the United States, a different quality of service, something that um, we do well here in Arizona, the quality of the tournaments here, are really good and implementing and giving that because most of them they don't have even chance to go to a tournament because they can't afford so now getting like good partnerships that have like nice medals nice organization you know so uh i'm stoked for this for this new phase of jiu-jitsu tribe that's awesome well gustavo thank you so much for making the time to talk with us share with us give us that that great window into the history of jiu-jitsu that so many people just have no idea about You've been through it all from the kind of very early days through to the evolution of where it is now. It's like, uh, it's pretty awesome. Thank you for being on the show. And what we'll do is we'll make sure that we include links to all of the different things that you're doing, all the projects, your podcast, um, Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. In terms of people being able to contact you, reach you, train in Arizona, what's the best place for people to get you, get to you? I think just... 
if you go to Instagram, Gustavo Dantas BJJ, I think it'd be easier to contact me. I'll have a, like a link tree there with all the stuff that that I do, and people can get more information. Or like, I, since I'm involved with way too many things, I try to kind of cut it down. But when I see I have more, it's one of those things you get your plate full, and you're like, oh, just give me a bigger plate so I can put more stuff in instead of getting what I have on a plate. Yeah, this is the idea of so. Just doing less, not teaching as much, not getting getting as involved with the competition. But I feel, as I get older, my heart is just. I've been. This has been happening the past few years, and I felt like last year more and more pulling me to the social aspect. That's why I feel the where my true passion is. And everyone got to keep in mind, you're not gonna be here for that long. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much. Of course, we need to to pay our bills. We need to make our money, but. You know, sometimes, uh, and I did, especially living in the United States, sometimes you get attached to the kind of the material world and then and then make me, you know, through my journey thinking like, like my house is in my house. A- am I going to take with me when I leave? You know, one day someone else is going to leave here, you know, and then so I'm renting. Everyone's renting. You know what I mean? No one owns anything. Everyone is renting here cars. So... Might as well, why not try to make the best of the time that you have here on earth and and why not helping people because um yeah it's it it goes it goes fast that's a great message, thank you, Gustavo. We appreciate you so much and uh mate, I think a, a round two might be might be due we've got lots lots of questions we didn't get into today, probably so. a two and three I can go on and on, <laughs> my guy, all right, all right, thank you so much, guys, thank you, brother. We appreciate you coming on man. yes sir. Thank you.